Well, good evening to you all. Good evening and welcome to worship at City Reformed. I'm not presiding, I'm preaching. I don't need to say that, but um, it's good to be with you. My name's uh, Jim Partridge, if you don't know me. I'm one of the elders here at City and so glad to be uh, with you all tonight. So um, if you are not aware, City Reformed is working through what we call 90 days of worship uh, at the beginning of this year. And we at the, are at the two-thirds point exactly. Yesterday was day 60. Uh, if you have not yet joined in with us, you can still do that. Uh, check out the website. I check it every morning uh, for my devotions. It's a wonderful thing that uh, our pastor and our um, music director, Daniel Snoke, collaborated on and um, it's just been, I've found it to be very life-giving. I'm giving a plug for that also because I did the devotionals for this coming week and I hope that they're uh, uh, helpful for you. And uh, Psalm 130 uh, is actually, it's very appropriate that we would um, preach on that tonight because that's the focus of the liturgy for this next week. We're doing a Psalm of Ascent each week and um, so Psalm 30, 130 is our uh, psalm for this week. And I think it's also very appropriate after Pastor Nauman this morning, uh, his focus on the confessional element uh, in our corporate worship. Um, also appropriate, this psalm was sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem to the temple during the great worship festivals. Uh, it's a psalm of ascent, as you'll uh, see, it doesn't actually say that in the text, but if you look in the Bible, it says it's a psalm of ascent. And those were road songs that were sung by these travelers going up to Jerusalem. This particular psalm is all about an honest, suffering believer confessing his sin and his need before a God whose character is, in a nutshell, highlighted by, I'd suggest, two little English words five letters each, that he's desperate for. Mercy and grace. I once heard a simple definition of these words that I actually wrote down in my little Bible, and I think they're actually pretty sound theologically. Mercy, he does not give us what we deserve. Grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. So we're going to be looking at those central aspects of God's character tonight. In preparation for this sermon, um, I wanted to uh, uh, see a movie. So my wife and I watched the uh, movie version of Les Mis a couple nights ago. Uh, it's the one with Liam Neeson in it. And uh, it's a great movie. Uh, she actually listened to the musical tonight or today, and I want to see that version as well. It's a great, great story. Um, if you're familiar with that, uh, I'd suggest to you that Inspector Javert in Les Mis is the epitome of the opposite of the character of God that we're going to explore tonight. He's the epitome of the graceless, merciless justice warrior. He has no categories for gospel concepts like repentance, forgiveness, and redemption. His world is flat. It's black and white. There's no possibility of behavioral change. Jean Valjean, Valjean, on the other hand, 
This man has a firsthand tangible experience with the mercy of God and the grace of God through the forgiveness offered by the priest that he stole from. And as a result, his life is a powerful testimony of grace and service in the midst of much personal and societal suffering. It's a great story. So friends, as we consider uh, our troubled world full of sin and suffering, and as we reflect on those same things in our own particular lives, let's turn and be encouraged by the central message of this ancient little song composed by a Jewish believer perhaps 3,000 years ago. The central message is this. There is a merciful, powerful, and personal God who offers hope, steadfast love, and forgiveness to those who wait and trust in him to deal with their sin and their suffering. And he's worth waiting for. The question is, will we wait? Will we trust? Will we repent and believe in him? Let me read the psalm, and then I'm going to ask you to pray with me as, uh, before we look into it. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, this psalm is timeless, and we thank you that you have given us this word, this word of honest confession, this word of hope, this word that displays your character. And I pray that, Father, you, by your spirit, would take this word and sink it deep into our hearts, and Lord, make us live psalm-like lives lives that are characterized by praise, by trust, by waiting in faith for you, the God of our redemption. Lord, we especially need that help in this particular time. Um, our world, Lord, is in great turmoil. We have brothers and sisters who are fleeing for their lives, who are displaced, who are being bombed. Uh, there are trouble spots all throughout the globe. And there are trouble spots in our own lives, in our families. So, Father, I pray that this word, that you would use this word to give us confidence in who you are and who you can make us to be by the grace of Christ. Father, would you help me uh, to proclaim this word with clarity? I pray that you would forgive my sin 
and use these words even for your purpose. We pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to just look at the message of the psalm. We're going to think about some of the challenges that we have in uh, believing the message of the psalm and then seek some application to our lives as 21st century followers of Jesus. This psalm really breaks down, if you look at it, into uh, four neat little stanzas. Um, verse 1 and 2 is the psalmist's plea. It's a statement of confession and need. Verses 3 and 4 are the psalmist's meditation. It's actually a statement of gospel truth. Verses 4 and 5, the psalmist's response, a statement of dependence. And then verses 7 and 8, the psalmist's exhortation, his testimony, and his promise. It's a statement of hope and confidence. So let's just go through um, these verses. Look at verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to read them again, just for our benefit. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What do you see here? Well, you see urgency, don't you? You hear a cry. In the Hebrew, I'm five years away from taking biblical Hebrew, and I... Uh, forget most of it, but there is an imperative here, uh, and the word used here for Lord is actually Adonai, so you're going to see, if you look carefully there, you see Lord in caps, that's Yahweh, and then you see Lord in smaller case, that's Adonai, they're both in verses 1, uh, then verses verse uh, 3, you'll see that again, and then down in verse Five. So we have uh, two words for God here, um, but here there's an urgent cry, Adonai Shema, O Lord, hear, hear. This psalm begins, where does it begin? It begins in trouble. It begins in need. It's honest, as the psalms always are. What are the depths? Well, the depths are not defined in the psalm but we can uh, be pretty sure that it's linked to the issue of sin. This is one of the penitential psalms. Uh, iniquity is mentioned twice in the psalms. So the sin of the psalmist is in view, but I don't think we have to limit it to that. There's a lot of other suffering in our lives that are not directly correlated perhaps to our personal sin. The psalmist is in the depths and he's crying out to God. That's the point. So this psalmist immerses his suffering in both the personal, Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, and in the powerful, Adonai, God. He immerses his suffering in his God. Verses three and four, if we move down there, we see this truth about this personal and powerful God. He is both holy and and merciful. Verse three. Let me read these again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse three is all about God's holiness. 
If you would mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer, the obvious answer is no one. No one. If he is holy, then that requires reverence and awe from us. But one of the great buts of scripture we find in verse four, do we not? But with you, there is forgiveness. It's spotlighting God's mercy. Mercy is one of the great attributes of God. There are many of them, but the, uh, the Puritans loved this psalm. They loved this verse. Thomas Watson was a, a Puritan who called mercy God's darling attribute. It was his attribute that he is most, perhaps most natural for him. And... Um, If you've ever read John Owen, one of the great English Puritans, he spends no less than 225 pages on verse 4. It's an amazing thing. If if you're not uh, into reading um, something as dense as John Owen, I might suggest you a book, and it's called Gentle and Lowly uh, by a guy named Dane Ortland. A lot of you perhaps have read this. But uh, he actually uh, talks about the character of God, uh, our gentle and lowly Savior, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And he talks in here um, specifically about um, how we balance and think about the deep character of God as both holy and just, a God who will judge, and yet a God who is merciful and gracious. The Puritans had a lot to say about that, and this is a very accessible uh, way to get into the Puritans. I just want to give you one quote that uh, I uh, found in here as I reread this this, uh, book. This is from Jonathan Edwards. He's not commenting specifically on this verse, but, but another one that spotlights the mercy of God. Jonathan Edwards, uh, as you know, um, perhaps one of the last of the Puritans, Um, He says this, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Our God does judge. He will judge. He will judge with equity, but his nature, what's more natural to him, his heart, is mercy. Well, how does the psalmist respond to this meditation on who God is? He, met, he answers this in verse uh, five and six. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. We want to note here the relationship of God and his word. They are intimately linked here. You see in this verse, as you see in many of the Psalms of Ascent, you see repetition Uh, That repetition kind of slows down the psalm. It makes us think. The writer is wanting us to think. And the Hebrew verbs for waiting, for hoping, along with back in verse 1, crying out, 
the form of the verb is actually suggesting an ongoing activity. This is not just a one-off, not a momentary or discreet act. The psalmist deals with his sin and his suffering on a regular basis with his God because, why? Because he's in relationship with him. He's a covenant God. Well, in verse seven and eight, you'll see a change here. We, the psalmist has been very personal. He's been talking uh, in the first person and now it's as if he turns to the congregation and says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we see here again an imperative Hope in Yahweh. The covenant name here in this verse is actually used twice. You'll see the Lord in caps twice. So again, the writer is wanting to make this personal. Why? Why should we hope in the Lord? I'll give you two good reasons from this psalm. One is the character of God. Steadfast love is his. That's Hesed love. That is the Old Testament, I think the Old Testament version of what might be called agape love in the New Testament. It's the commitment that God has to his people. It, uh, Paul Miller uh, speaks uh, of Hesed love in a beautiful book uh, called Loving God. And it's, um, it's commitment love. It is not love as we understand it. Second reason for hoping in Yahweh is the promise of God, full redemption from sin. He will save Israel from all their iniquity. So again, I say to you, friends, the central message of Psalm 130 is this. There is a merciful, powerful, personal God who offers hope and steadfast love and forgiveness to those who wait and trust in him to deal with their sin and their suffering. And he's worth waiting for. It's a great little psalm, isn't it? I don't know about you, though. I have some problems with my response to this psalm. First of all, I don't personally, and I don't think we as a society really acknowledge sin and suffering much less confess it to God, much less confess it to one another, much less repent of it. Sin and suffering is a foreign concept in our culture of comfort, of superficiality, and of cynicism, isn't it? Secondly, I don't know about you, but I can't wait, sometimes I can't wait for anything. We can't wait as a culture. If you question that, look at the expectations that we have from technology. When I married my wife, who's a missionary kid, uh, 39 years ago this summer, she would write regularly letters to her parents who were in East Africa. That was their met method of uh, communication. Letter writing, you ever write a letter? Any of, any of you under 30 ever write a letter? Letter writing was how they communicated and they would often laugh because their letters would cross and information would be old and 
Well, when email came in the 80s, it was like a wonderful thing that we could communicate with her parents in a much more timely manner. Well, what came after that? When my daughter went to uh, uh, Cameroon in 2014, um, 2012, um, we had this thing called Skype. And we could not only talk with Carolyn, we could actually see her, except when the Skype cut out. And how did I respond to that? I responded with impatience and like, what's going on here? And then I sat and thought, oh my word, why am I complaining? And now, of course, Zoom has come upon us. And um, as much as you may hate Zoom calls and Zoom seminars and all that stuff, in the end, friends, Zoom has been, hasn't it been, uh, in many ways, a wonderful tool during this, during this pandemic. I don't know how many Gs I have on my phone, if it's 3G, 4G, or 5G, but I think the whole idea of that is to speed up uh, the data, right? We can't wait in this culture. And we don't do help, hope well. It's really easy, isn't it, for us to be cynical? We do that really well. Well, let me just make a couple applications from Psalm 130. Pastor Naaman this morning preached on confessional aspect of our corporate worship. It has been said that confession is good for the soul. Uh, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, what? So that you may be healed. Come to him in your sin and suffering as he has come to you in Jesus. We had a men's retreat last week, and um, Friday night, Pastor Joseph spoke about men and themselves, which of course talked about issues of sexual sin. And we had an opportunity to then share in small groups. It was a great opportunity for confession. And guess what? I chickened out. I was self-conscious. Pastor Naaman kind of talked about that this morning. And I didn't confess something that was on my heart with my brothers who were there and were very gracious. One of them confessed something very, very uh, difficult for him, but I chickened out. The next day, however, the Lord really nailed me in my prayer time and I went to our group leader and I confessed uh, something on my heart to him and he received that, prayed for me, and my soul just felt so cleansed. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. So confession, friends, is good for the soul. To repeat Pastor Naaman's point from this morning, may, and this is one of my prayers for our church, may city reform become more of a confessing community because it's good for our souls. Secondly, I'd like to suggest that you meditate on his mercy toward you. Remember, mercy... My little definition, he does not give to us what we deserve. And his grace toward you, he gives us what we do not deserve. Thirdly, maybe we need a little lifestyle checkup. Are you waiting and hoping in faith? Or are you manipulating and frantically doing life out of a posture of cynicism? Psalm 130, friends, helps us to avoid that. It immerses 
our suffering, our circumstances in a God uh, with whom there is plenteous redemption, steadfast love, great promises. I'd like to end my meditation with um, actually the assurance of pardon that we read today. This is another statement of the character of God from the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Would you pray with me?